Wednesday night. It's the eve of Thursday, uh, Covenant Thursday, that we're going to celebrate tomorrow. And uh, tonight I wanted to focus on something we say actually during Kiech, um during the, I think it's the Friday Theotokia. We say, he took what is ours and gave us what is his. Um, and I want to meditate a little bit on that um, at the end, especially. But before I get there, um, when we think about problems and we think about all the problems that we have, um, we have to ask, what's our biggest problem? And we can say, you know, I have sick parents, I have sick kids, I'm worried about my own health, I'm worried about my retirement, I'm worried about my job, I'm worried about getting fired, I'm worried about all these other things. But when we think about bigger and bigger problems, sort of our biggest problem is we're all going to die. And that becomes sort of the, the big problem that we all have to think about. And of course, knowing this is coming can lead to immense discouragement. Uh, I imagine the women that were wrapping Christ uh, after he died, and Christ died, died, died. And I'm sure they looked at him and just thought, you know, after all this, he, he, he raised people from the dead, he did all these, you know, walked on water, did all these amazing things, and now he's just dead. And it has to get you to start thinking about your own mortality and, and what's the meaning of all of it. And in fact, there's an entire area of philosophy dedicated to this train of thought. It's called nihilism. And it basically posits that everything is meaningless. There's pointlessness. There's no purpose in life. Uh, I'll read you some quotes from their thinking. The point is, there is no point. There's no purpose to life. You are here to achieve nothing. Whatever you feel is your supreme goal in life is a fiction created by you and the society you're living in, just to keep yourself busy in that purposeless creation. You are born to die. Everything else is pure nonsense. And this kind of thinking commonly torments people here in the West. And it leads to questions about the meaning of the world and the meaning of life and the meaning of death. And people have been asking that and philosophizing about it for, for thousands of years. What's the purpose of life and what's the meaning of all of this? And of course, the problem is there's no scientific proof or evidence of anything, right? We don't have too many accounts of people who have gone and come back from the other side to tell us what it's like. Even Lazarus didn't tell us what it was like. And so... With God's grace today, let's kind of discuss this, this topic, the topic of, of death. And of course, the, the question I really want to answer isn't about death, it's about what happens after death. What's, what's it like after, and what exists, and whether or not something actually exists after death. And so, dealing with this question torments people. And so, as a, as a reaction to this, we sort of have two camps that have evolved in the world that we can kind of identify as the reaction to death and how to deal with death. And I'll talk about both of them, uh, and they seem to be a little bit in conflict with each other, actually quite a bit in conflict with each other. The first one I'm going to call the ancient religious view. And I'm going to put religious in quotes because it isn't really religious. It's more like it starts with Plato, Hinduism, Buddhism, ancient philosophies, Greek philosophy, all of them kind of encompass this kind of thinking. And it basically defends this other world beyond the grave, and it belittles this one. It says this world is just unfair, and so all the fairness has to happen in another world. And this was Plato's thinking on this matter, and that there has to be some god out there that's going to equalize everything. All the people who are unfairly treated in this and unjustly treated in this world, well, they're going to get their due kind of in this, this second world. And they often point out the world is meaningless and evil and bad, and that the only 
you know, the only hope is in this other world where there is meaning and there is no evil. And then that's sort of one camp. And then the other camp are, is sort of the, the atheist secular camp that evolved, right? And what this camp does is defends this world. And so in the name of now, it rejects any possibility of eternity. It doesn't, doesn't want to think about anything else. And then de facto what it does is it makes, reduces man to an accident, a transitory temporal occurrence that just happened. But this is the world we live in. And so here, that's the secular view. And so here as a Christian, I have to ask myself, do I have to accept one of these views? Do I have to reject one or accept the other? Can I accept both? And does it even matter which view I accept? And it, it turns out it does matter which view I accept because the view I accept, this is my relation to life. This is my worldview. And my relationship to death affects my relationship to life. It affects how I live my life. And for some of us, death is this horrible, frightening thing. Um, you know, some of us know people who can't go to a funeral, who can't even discuss the death of anyone, a loved one, a parent, or whomever. They, they can't handle, they can't process, they can't even think about it. They don't want to deal with it. And because it's frightening, and all of us have to face this truth, this personal, inescapable, universal, relentless truth about death. And so, which is it for us, the secular view or the ancient religion view? And it turns out, I don't have to accept either. So the Christian faith teaches us a third view, if you will, a different answer. It tells us about the annihilation of death and the resurrection. And so St. Paul says it best in Corinthians. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So. In the final analysis, both the religious view and the secular view are unsatisfying and they don't give us the answers we're looking for. So let's kind of talk through each one together. The first one is this ancient religious view. And again, I'm going to call religious in quotes because it's not Christianity. And here we have sort of a form of rejection of life in the name of death. And the thinking goes, look, we're going to die, it's inevitable then it's best just for me to transfer all my hopes, all my dreams, all my aspirations to this future life. This one is, you know, ending anyway. So I want to go to this mystical other world. And life itself just becomes a preparation for death. The whole point of life in this religious view is to, is to prepare for death. But of course, this view is very unsatisfactory, especially to young people. Because it's so focused on this other world that I can't know anything about and I can't understand and very few people know anything about. And when, when someone comes back to tell us about it, like St. Paul, he says, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard. Well, it doesn't help me much. And how can this be the object of my love when I know so little about it? It's kind of tough to do. But this view helps people deal with death and maybe even makes you want to die because you have this view and so death becomes desirable. It's the liberation from this oppressive body. It's liberation from suffering. It's the freedom from this busy, evil world. It's the beginning of eternity. And so now I kind of want to go to this other world. And this is the teaching that's in Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and all the other religions and philosophies that deal with, with this topic. And Plato, when he contemplated the misery of life, he basically thought this. He says, it's just not fair. And so there has to be this other life that makes everything fair and this platonic view of balancing everything out in the end. So before Christ, 
The main purpose of these ancient religions was to help explain death to us, to help us, to help us die, to reconcile man with it. And I would say this is the common view that our parents and our relatives have in Egypt. Egypt is a very religious country, whether it be Islam or, or Christi Christianity. And there the view is very prevalent. It's all about this next life. So now we'll talk a little bit about the secular view. And of course, as a secularist or as an atheist, I have to argue, you know, did God really create all of this beauty and all of this possibility and all of this amazing world just so that man should reject it all and say, I don't want any of it? and forego all these glorious possibilities in the name of some unknown and vaguely promised other world. That's the atheist thinking, and it's a reasonable thought. And here in the West, that secular view is far more important, is far more prominent. That's what our young people, and we deal with at work, at school, wherever. This is the view that we come across quite a bit. So now instead of focusing on the afterlife, let's focus on this life, right? Let's talk about this world. And I don't want to reject this world in this life. And of course, the young people call that YOLO. Right? You only live once. And so they, they focus very much on, I want to do as many things as I can do before I die. Right? And get as many experiences and, and go through as much, and just do as much as I can. And of course, in the secular view, death is still scary and imminent. And when you lose your perspective of eternity, man becomes even more fragile and more fearful. And of course, we saw this during COVID. You know, everyone lost their minds. And people were scared, very, very, very scared to die and to get sick. And you see this fragility in man, like this, this very temporal thought. And we even see this in a secular funeral. We, we hire someone called a funeral director. And his job is to make everything as pleasant and as peaceful and as calm as possible so that no one is really sad during the event. In fact, the body, the, the corpse, is beautified. Right? We, we put makeup on the person and we'll, we'll put plastic surgery on the person. We'll make him look as not dead as possible to disguise his deadness. And sometimes we even call it a celebration of life. And it's like we're all kind of dancing around this very uncomfortable fact that there's someone who's dead that's right here in front of us in the church. And so the secularist says to themselves, look, I know this world, I know this life, so how do I deal with it? Well, I'm just going to make it as meaningful as possible, right? I'm going to make it as rich and as happy as possible. I'll do as many important things. So life ends with death. It's unpleasant, sure, but it's natural. And the best thing a man can do in the secular view is to simply accept it as something natural, and how do I deal? Well, I don't think about it. As long as I live, I think about life, and I don't think about death. And the best way to forget about it is to be busy, useful, dedicated to greater things, more important things, things that will outlive you, foundations, causes, whatever the case may be. Build a better world than the one you're in right now. And then in the end, if there happens to be a God, and he happens to judge me, and he happens to see all the useful, meaningful things that I did, then that's just a cherry on top, right? If he uh, uh, appreciated all the stuff that I did. And so this is the secular view that is very common here in the West, that we interact with a lot more at work and at school. And so now, let's talk about the Christian view. So we've talked about the religious view, which focuses after this life, on the afterlife, and then we've talked about the secular view, which focuses on this life. And if the secular view rejects death, 
it's kind of like this religious view rejects life. So what's the Christian view of death? And Christ, in Christ, death can't really be reduced so easily to one of these two approaches. St. Paul said the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it's as if we find ourselves in this other third dimension. Death is an enemy that must be destroyed. And in fact, so many of the Psalms that we read during Holy Week that we continue to read, we talk about conquering enemies and we talk about the enemies are surrounding me. And this is the enemy we're talking about. And what was Christ's reaction to death when he came up against death? We see that he went to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who had died. And what did he do? He wept. And that's a very powerful witness. And what he didn't do is what we all do, which is say these trite things like he's in a better place, he's in heaven, he's not suffering anymore, he's resting. He didn't try to console anybody. He didn't say all the things we do. He didn't give a sermon. He didn't give a talk. He just wept. And then according to the gospel, he raises him from that state. And if it was true that Lazarus was in a better place and was happy and was enjoying heaven, well, then he probably was pretty upset at Christ for bringing him back, right? Like, what were you doing? I was so happy with the angels. He's eating cotton candy. Okay, so, um, and so Christ didn't really talk all about the immortality of the souls. That wasn't the language he used. He spoke about the resurrection of the dead. And there's a difference. Christ said, the dead shall rise and those in the graves shall rejoice. So in essence, Christianity isn't about coming to terms with death. It's about victory over it. And so when Christ weeps at the grave of his friend Lazarus, we have to pause and we have to think about this. Consider the moment of these tears. This is a transformation of religion. Christ struggled with it. It made him cry. It doesn't seem like it's normal and natural. It doesn't seem like some, you know, a fact that happens to all of us. It seems foreign. It seems unnatural. It seems fearsome and perverted. It's acknowledged as the enemy. Death was the enemy. And we weep too at funerals, don't we? Why? I mean, intellectually, we all know everything dies. Every, everybody dies, all the animals die, the plants, everything dies. So why, why are we weeping? Well, because something feels wrong. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like it should happen. There's something weird about it. And in fact, when we find someone who's being too stoic at a wedding, you imagine a, a widow who just lost her husband and she's being very stoic and not crying and, and pretending like everything's okay and saying, well, he's in heaven now and everything's great. It's okay to, to ask her, you know, it's okay to weep. It's okay to cry. It's okay to get it out. Right? It's okay to show this sadness because this is a sad loss event. And so a very important, profound question for Christianity is then where did death come from? And the answer is not from God. So we find this in a brief statement in the Holy Scriptures. In wisdom it says, God did not make death. And he does not delight in the death of the living. For he created all things that they might exist. So the first mention we have of death was in the garden when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of this, the fruit of this tree or death you shall surely die. And note he didn't say, if you eat of this tree, I'll kill you. He said, if you eat of this tree, death you shall surely die. 
That means in the world, in the creation, there's this power that doesn't have its origin in God. He didn't desire it. He didn't create it. It opposes him. It's independent of him. Because always and everywhere in the Gospels, it says that God is life. He is the giver of life. In Arabic, we say, He infuses life. That's what he is. So if death didn't come from God, where did it come from? And St. Paul gives us the answer in Romans. He says, and through sin, death has come into the world. Through sin, death has come into the world. And in the liturgy, we say something very similar in the prayer of reconciliation. We say, death entered the world through the envy of the devil. So in other words, for Christianity, death is this spiritual catastrophe. It isn't natural. It's not part of the plan. It's a foreign enemy that has come into our world. And Christianity proclaims that death is something to be destroyed and not some mystery to be explained. We're not called to deal with it and make it natural. And the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And in the current creed, we say, we look for the resurrection of the dead. And so Christ said, I came, I became sin, I took on death in order to alleviate death. During Easter, in a few days, we're going to sing Christus Anisti, Christ is risen from the dead. By death, he trampled death, and, in those, and to those in the tombs bestowing life. And we see that. What happened as soon as Christ died? It's kind of a scary scene. It says the tombs were open and the bodies of many holy people who were died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went in the holy city and appeared to many people. Very scary sight, I'm sure. And so we don't want to give death a status or a rationale or make it normal. Only Christianity proclaims it to be abnormal, truly horrible. And Christ wept again. At Lazarus's, at Lazarus's grave. And when his own hour approached to die, it says he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And so the secular world says, we want freedom, we want prosperity, we want to be well-fed. But the question is, what's the use of freedom and prosperity and food when you know you're condemned to die? I mean, you can imagine, you know, someone breaks in, puts a gun to your head and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot you in five minutes. What's your favorite meal that I want you to enjoy it? I'm not going to enjoy it because I know I've got a, a ticker coming. And so many of us go through life knowing the ticker is coming and we can't really enjoy life. What's the point? Everything we pursue ends up as a dead end anyway. And Christianity answers and says man desires life, not for a moment, but for eternity, and it's not found in the food or in the air or in good health. And so the point of Christianity isn't sitting around and waiting to die. Life isn't just a lead-up to death. Christ tells us, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So in Christ, there is no loneliness. There is no more fear and darkness. I am with you, says Christ. I am with you now and always in complete knowledge, in complete love, and in complete power. So as we go through Holy Week and we start to hear all the praises, thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty, we think about how Christ came and he conquered this. He conquered death. And in fact, on Good Friday, if you remember, what do we do as soon as Christ dies? We do something in the church, who remembers? We take down the black and we put up white. It's kind of 
not what you would expect us to do. It's kind of the opposite, right? That's the, the first way the church tries to tell us, okay, death has been conquered. And so in this week, we realize that David took down Goliath, right? In the, the, the icon of the crucifixion right there, you'll notice we have the icon of David and Goliath right next to it. Right? And as we've talked about many times before, why do we put that icon there? Well, because David took out Goliath. And who was Goliath? What was Goliath? He was the undefeatable foe. He was the one person you can't beat. He was unbeatable, the enemy that could not be stopped. And whose enemy, who's the enemy now that is unbeatable for us? Death. And so our David, as we said on Palm Sunday, Hosanna to the son of David, he came and he defeated the undefeatable. He conquered Goliath. He conquered death. And how did he do it? Who remembers? It's in the icon. He didn't just hit him with a stone. The stone knocked him down. Then he took Goliath's own sword and he killed Goliath with it. So it's as if Christ took Satan's weapon and he killed Satan with his own, defeated Satan with his own weapon. And what's the weapon? Death. Is that what we say? He trampled death by death. He conquered death by death. All right, so how do I participate in this conquering of death? Let's go back to the story of the creation. What did Adam and Eve do wrong? Well, the first thing is they, they chose the option that God didn't bless, right? You have 700 options and you pick number 701. Never a good strategy. And as we say in the Gregorian liturgy, I plucked for myself the sentence of death, right? It's a beautiful, a beautiful line in the Gregorian liturgy. Of course, we're always half asleep and thinking about meat. But when Abuna says that, it's, it's, it's so thought-provoking. I plucked for myself the sentence of death. And so St. Augustine has this beautiful quote. He says, you have created for us, you have created us for you, Lord, and our hearts cannot rest until they find the rest in you. So Adam and Eve basically didn't desire this life with God. They chose not God. They chose someone else. Metropolitan, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom says, life becomes meaningless when it loses its connection to absolute meaning, absolute beauty, absolute goodness. And then this world becomes not only meaningless, it becomes death. So everything has in its life, in itself, everything vanishes, everything dissolves, everything cut from its roots dies. You've all bought flowers, you put them in the vase, they look so pretty, but you know that as soon as you cut them, they're starting to die and it's just a matter of time. Okay, so they ate, they picked the fruit of death. They picked not God. But that's okay, I do that all the time. I always choose not God. I sin all the time. I do that this morning on driving on the freeway. So now what do they do? They were naked and they were ashamed. And what did they do? Who remembers? How they cover their naked and their shameness? They clothed themselves. And how they clothed themselves? Fig leaves. They took some fig leaves and they tied them together. They sewed them together. And what's the problem with that, right? They had a problem. They're naked. They're ashamed. They wanted to fix it. So they clothed themselves with some fig leaves. And that's how they wanted to cover their sin. But how did God cover their sin? He did something else. He took the skin of an animal did an animal sacrifice, a prefigurement of his own sacrifice, and he clothed them. 
So who covers the sins? God says, I cover the sins with my own sacrifice. And so in my case, sometimes I try to cover my sins with my own work, my own efforts, my own rituals, more fasting, more ascetics, more prayer, more whatever. But that's not how sins get covered. They get covered by Christ. And so we need to learn how to do less and let him do more. So how does Christ do more? Let's go back to that sacrifice in the garden. Man is what he eats. We have another common saying here in the United States, uh, you are what you eat. And so if you think about it, what do we eat all the time? Death. Everything we eat is dead. Right? And everything we eat is corrupting. Right? That's how you've got to take the meat, you've got to put it in the fridge right away, the fruits and vegetables are dying. Everything is going bad. And it's just a time game, right? You're just trying to eat it before it goes bad. So everything we put in our face is dead. And so we're constantly eating death. And to us, that's completely normal. And so Christianity comes along and says, let's give you something else to satisfy our hunger. Christ is life. And he offers us to satisfy our hunger with him, the hunger of our soul, with life and not with death. Adam plucked for himself the sentence of death. He chose to eat death. Don't eat death. Eat life. In fact, this is exactly what Christ said to them in, in John chapter 6. He said, what? Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. They ate death. Christ conquered death. And Christ even then said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise up on the last day. Again, this conquering of death. And so, how do we do this? Well, when, I, when we watch Abuna pray the liturgy, we see that he takes the Urbana and he prays on it, and then he changes it to the body of Christ. How, does it, how many bodies of Christ do we have when Abuna prays? Just one. And then he takes this Urbana, the body of Christ, and he breaks it into a hundred pieces. How many bodies of Christ do we have? Just one. And then he puts the hundred pieces in everyone's mouth in the church. How many bodies of Christ do we have? Still one, right? But now we are all in him and he in us. And now we have taken on life. I'm now in that crucified body. I'm in the same body that defeated death, that conquered death. I participate with him in this conquering of death. So the, the, the Eucharist is me participating with this risen, victorious Christ. All right, so let's go back to that Friday Theotokeia where we all started. He took what is ours and gave us what is his. He took what is ours. What did he take? Death. And he gave us what is his. What did he give us? Death conquered. And that's the exchange. And when we see death, one of the main attributes that come with death is fear. And we saw this again during covid and the most repeated command in the Bible, apparently 365 times, is fear not. I didn't count whether or not it's really 365, but it's in the internet, so it can't be wrong. And this sort of reminds me of the 12 disciples right around this crucifixion. If you look at the 12 disciples before the crucifixion, and you look at their track record, it's pretty bad, right? So you have one guy betraying him, one guy denying him, cursing and swearing that he doesn't know him. Nine guys fleeing for their lives. 
and only one falls into the cross. So pretty, pretty pathetic, right? And then after the resurrection, does anyone know how the disciples die? Eleven of them die as martyrs, horrible, gruesome deaths. And what's amazing is they were just told to stop speaking. Can you just stop talking about Jesus? And they're like, no. And they're like, if you don't stop talking, we'll kill you. And they said, kill us, which is just kind of an odd thing. But they didn't fear death. Death had been conquered. They saw it conquered right before their very eyes. And we see this in the people who have acquired the, the heart of Christ and all of the martyrs. They're not scared to die because they know death has been conquered. Victory over death has been assured. And so what's the outcome of this view that death has been conquered? It goes back to my worldview. It's a type of life. Because life without death is a life of hope. It's full of meaning. It's full of richness. It's not futile. It's not without purpose. It's not dread and misery. It's not just preparation to die. And so St. Paul even comes to the same conclusion. He says, and we read this the night of Easter, if the dead are not raised, let us drink and eat, for tomorrow we die. And so the futility goes away when, we, when death is conquered. Now there's meaning to life. Now it's purposeful. And in fact, the Egbeya does this exact same thing. Every night, the Egbeya reminds me that I'm going to die. On purpose, because it wants you to remind you on the first hour of the Egbeya that Christ resurrected and he conquered that death. And so Christ again said, I came to give us life and life more abundantly. I was watching a movie once where a son and his father were stranded and there was no help and they're in the middle of the desert and, you know, they're going to die. They had no food and there's just like one piece of food left. And the father's told the son, you know, we're not going to both make it. We both don't have enough food. I want you to eat this. I want you to live so that when the help comes, they'll still find you alive. I want you to eat this so you can have life. And I couldn't help but think when I was watching this movie that that's exactly what Christ did the night of, the, of Holy Thursday. He said, eat this. This is life. This is me. Eat this and you won't die. And he said that, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, I'll read you a story and we can conclude. This is a, someone who came to talk to Elder Porphyrios. And well, I won't tell you the whole story. I'll, I won't read it. I'll just tell you the story. Um, so he came to Elder Porphyrios. I hope I say it right because sometimes I, I don't always say it right. Um, he came to Elder Porphyrios and he was going to go complain about all his problems. And then he said, so I'll read it. In that darkness, one thought gave me great comfort and courage. I told the elder about it as soon as I entered his cell. You know, I told him. Before I reveal to you that I'm going through trials yet again, you know, he's going to talk about his wife and his kids and his job, and he was going to go complain to the elder about how hard his life was. You should also know that I am very comforted by the thought that in this earthen world in which we live, everything is empty and temporary. We need just a little bit more patience because both joys and sorrows will soon pass and the great moment will come when death will lead me into immortal life for which I wish 
to be worthy with your prayers so I can live with Christ. So he basically told him, look, I know I'm going to die, and I can't wait to die, and I can't wait to be with Jesus. I waited for his approval about my musings. So he's expecting the saint to go, oh, that's great that you want to die. But was taken aback when I heard him react very strongly against them. He said, kid, don't have such thoughts that you'll die and enter heaven, heavenly immortal life. Struggle to become immortal now by dying here on the earth to your bad self. In this way, you won't be sad, but you'll be very glad living together with Christ. So you won't be afraid of trials or Satan or death because you'll be victorious over all of them on earth. And so he's basically telling him heaven is here on earth. Life with God is here on earth. We don't live to wait to die. Christ has conquered death. And glory be to God forever. Amen.